Amen. Hey, if you didn't know it, you have been, or at least this opportunity for you to, here's the Word of God, straight from the Scripture. It's Ephesians 2, if you want to look it up. You were dead. This is is written to Christians, so it's in the past tense. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is still at work among uh, among the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy. Amen. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, if that's true, everything's changed. Amen. If those words are true, everything's changed. And by the way, those, those words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit were written by the Apostle Paul, a man who tried to destroy the church. And so anybody can be saved. You know, there's none so bad that they cannot be saved. Over and over and over again, we see this in the Scripture. You say, oh, you don't know what I've done in my life, Pastor Brandon. I don't know what you've done in your life, but I'm not the one offering the promise. God's offering the the salvation, and He does know. See, there's none so bad that they need not be saved or cannot be saved. And by the way, there's also none so good that they don't need to be saved. All of us are by nature children of wrath. And Jesus Christ is the word of God come in the flesh. So he's mercy and grace in the flesh. And that's who we're studying in in Luke chapter 7, verses 31 to 35. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about Jesus, friend of sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Jesus Christ, a friend of sinners. That's good news to me because I'm a sinner. And what I need is a friend like Jesus. Um, My daughter, my youngest daughter right now is three years old. Of course, we're about to have another little girl in a couple of months. So pray for me. Amen. <laughs> I already love that little girl. I hadn't met her. But um, my, my three-year-old, one of her favorite things to do right now is to read books. And this is her very favorite. In fact, please remind me to take this with me. Because if I get home and don't have this, come nap time, we're in trouble. Curious George and the bunny. And uh, the craziest thing happens. We'll open up this book. This is George. George is a good little monkey and always very, who knows it? Curious, yeah, some of you, you've read this at your house. The children could have finished it, right? And, and, and that's the deal is uh, she saddles, uh, saddles up right beside me. We get kind of cozy at the couch, and I'll open up the book, and I'll do what I just did with you. This is George. George is a good little monkey and always very, and I'll stop. And you know what she'll say? Curious. And as we read this book together, it doesn't matter where I stop. She's heard it so many times. I'll stop mid-syllable, and she'll finish it. In fact, she can pick this book up. And she can read it, but she can't read. You know what I'm saying? She she doesn't know what these words say, but she knows what the words say. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he meets a bunch of self-righteous people who know the words, but they don't know the words. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like you can sing Amazing Grace. You can know that song. You can fill in the blank, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, and you can fill in the blank, but that doesn't mean you know it. You know what I'm saying? You know the song, you know the words, but do you know Jesus? That's my question for you this morning. We know this is an important uh, thing to consider because Jesus says on the last day, many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, but he'll say to, be, say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. you. You never really knew Jesus. You knew about him. But you didn't know him. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to stop asking you know what I'm saying because it's getting on my own nerves at this point. <laughs> but it's possible to know about Jesus but not know Jesus. 
to know the songs, can even sing about the deep, deep love of Jesus, all I need and trust, and not really know that that's all that you need and trust. Jesus Christ, friend of sinners. We'll pray together and then study this scripture together. Father, help us to know that there is literally an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. The world, the flesh, and the devil are perfectly content if we know about Jesus. But they wage war against us knowing Jesus. We thank you that he's Emmanuel, God with us, that he has come to disclose himself to us. He has come to us. He stands at the door knocking to us. He's God with us. Uh, so, Father, I pray as we study the Scripture that you would open our eyes to the, to the reality that there is such a thing as shallow, self-righteous, legalistic religion, and that's far removed from the Gospel. And, Father, I pray that you would expose one in order for us to see the other clearly, and vice versa, so that we're not a people who know the words but don't know the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's pick up in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. I'll just briefly remind you the scene. We're, we're studying, we're seeking to know Jesus from the Word of God. The most thing that we need to know above all others is to know Jesus, and so we're studying through the Gospel of Luke for that purpose. In verse 31, the scene is that John the Baptist has sent messengers to Jesus. John the Baptist himself, the, the, as Jesus calls him, the greatest man who ever lived, born of woman, has gone through a season of doubt and of fear and of anxiety. And that was two weeks ago, so we won't rehash it, but just to know there, there'll be some times in your life you may even come to the point and say, are these things even true? John the Baptist came to that point, and he did the wisest thing. He went to Jesus with his fears and his anxieties and his doubts. And so if you ever have the same thing, I'd encourage you to do, to do the same. And so John the Baptist commended uh, to, to John's messengers that he is to Christ. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, right? Does that happen to you? Say, I've never died. Oh, you were born dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, raised us up with him. That happened in your life. Come to a point you say, yes, I recognize I was dead and now I am alive. So Jesus is still about the same work today. And then at the tail end of this section, as he's uh, talked to the crowd about John the Baptist, he says these words, verse 31, said, what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Now you think about that generation. They had some significant benefits, did they not? They'd had the greatest man born of woman who'd ever lived. John the Baptist had preached among them, had served among them. And then God in the flesh had come and dwelt among them. That is a blessed generation, is it not? To have John the Baptist and Jesus Christ preach to them. So Jesus says, what will I compare this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So we're going to take this text, and we're going to break it in half, and we're going to do one point, talk about the childish generation, and then secondly, we're going to talk about Jesus, friend of sinners. So Jesus begins by this observation. I'll tell you what this generation is like. And then he says they're like little children. Now there's sometimes that the Bible talks about being like little children and it's a good thing, right? If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you become like a little child. In this particular instance, it's not a positive 
uh, uh, representation. He says, this is a childish generation for the childish uh, ways that, that, uh, that people who should have grown out of these things have not grown out of them. So when Jesus says that this generation is like children, what does he mean? He compares them to little children playing in the market. So let me tell you a few things, a few, few uh, ways that this generation that Jesus is speaking of is childish. And uh, let's just go on and, and face the facts. He's talking about that generation, but these things can be true of us too, right? First of all, he says that the generation is play-acting. They're imitating a real thing, but they're not the real thing. And this is what children of every generation do, right? Now, this particular generation was before, you know, Star Wars, before Disney princesses, and before those sorts of things. So their games were what they just saw in ordinary everyday life, weddings and funerals. Those were the two most significant events in the life of a Jewish person. The, 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 the wedding, the biggest thing that there was, right? The, when the whole community would come together and they'd celebrate together and they'd uh, uh, have the biggest party that you'd seen this side of Operation Christmas Child on Saturday, right? And then the second big event was the funeral. And the whole community again would come together. So, so this, this, this group of children, they're in the marketplace, and these are the games that they play. You, you understand they're not at an actual wedding, right? But they're pretending that they are. They're play-acting. It's the imitation of the real thing. Children always imitate real life in their play. I did it when I was a child. One, one of the things that we got in our family that... Um, uh, revolutionized our play was back in the late 1980s we were given uh, a video recorder now 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 these days everybody you got it on your phone and uh, this is way back in the late 80s when you got the video recorder and it you know you almost had to be a weightlifter you know what I'm saying to ho- you had to bend to the knees right bend to the knees and hoist it and put it on your shoulder right and put the old you remember these VHS cassette tapes in the box and then you'd undo the cap and you'd look through. I mean, it looks, you, you think, you, you know. And so, so what we began to do is make movies. And I was good at making movies as long as I was the, the writer, the director, the producer, and the star. <laughs> now, there is somewhere at my mom's house to this day a box of VHS tapes somewhere that we, the three boys, are praying never see the light of day. And in one movie that we made in particular, I got into westerns. And I wrote a western Guess who was the star? Me, right? I was going to be the good guy. I was going to ride in on my white horse. Problem, no horse. I did have a cowboy hat. And my cousin, who lives in Garner, she would come in the summers to stay a week, and I made her the uh, damsel in distress. <laughs> so I was going to rescue her. And uh, so we got the video camera, set the whole thing up. And I, uh, it's been about 10 years since I've seen the thing, but the, but the funny thing is I had the little Western music playing, scene one, opened the thing, and uh, the shot is me in my cowboy hat with my six-shooter, and in the background comes driving a minivan, but someone just drives down the road, <laughs> you know. Not that, not that we were going to ever uh, have it, but all legitimacy of the Western went out in that scene, right? There's one word to describe my Western, inauthentic. That's what Jesus is saying, that's what this generation's like. They're inauthentic. They're play-acting. They're imitating the real thing, but they don't have the real thing. You know, to know the thing is not the same thing as to have the thing. And that's true of a lot of things. It's particularly true for our purposes this morning of faith in Christ. To know about it, but not know it. To know what it's like, but to not possess it for yourself. You understand what I'm saying? The scripture says that the enemy blinds the eyes 
of the unbelievers. And there's nothing so devastating as to think that you see, but you don't really see, but you're convinced that you're seeing. Jesus says that this generation, they're, they're play-acting. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. What he's saying is you were just playing the whole time. So let, let, me, let me just uh, get to a little bit of the heart of the matter. How do you know if you're play-acting or if you have the real thing? Well, just examine your life. It's not complicated. When nobody else is around, and it's just you, or it's just you and your spouse, and your, you, you, you know what the best indicator is? Is your home. <laughs> your home. When, when, when Paul, for example, when Paul writes Ephesians, and we quoted some of it this morning, he spends the first three chapters talking about the glorious doctrine of grace, that you were dead, and now you're alive, you were lost, and now you're found, and you were dead in your trespasses. So, 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 so then in the latter stages of Ephesians, the last couple of chapters, he starts to talk about how that plays out in real life. And you know where he starts? In your home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, don't you think it would be strange to say, I know Jesus, but that my wife would say, I don't recognize him in your life. Wouldn't you say that that's incompatible? Wouldn't it be more like you're playing than the real thing? Do you know what I'm saying? You know, they played wedding and a funeral, but they wasn't actually at a wedding or a funeral. And then not too, not too long after that, Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And sometimes little ones come to me and say that they uh, think Jesus has been talking to them. They're going to be born again. You know what the first question to ask is? Are you obeying your parents? <laughs> you know? I mean, if you, if you smart off to your parents and disrespect their authority and scream at them and then say, I follow Jesus, and Jesus said, children, obey your parents, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That was just a couple of chapters ago, right? What's he getting at? Don't play like I'm the Lord. Submit to me as the Lord. Because ultimately, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when all the games are over, right? There's going to come a time when the play acting's done. The, 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 the veil is, is, is removed, and then he returns. And then on that day, it's going to be exposed who was playing, who was pretending, and who was an authentic, submitted servant of the Lord Jesus. I'm not trying to be, get, get, get down or discourage anybody, but I want to talk the truth. Because John came, and he wasn't play acting, and they said he was possessed of a demon. Jesus came and he's not play acting and that's said, he said, oh, he's just a friend of sinners and a drunkard and tax collectors and so on and so forth. Actually, their games, weddings and funerals are both pretty good pictures of the gospel. There's a way that a gospel, believing the gospel is like a wedding. In fact, we're the bride of Christ, right? Now, this question, are you playing dress up like you're the bride of Christ or are you really the bride of Christ? And coming to the gospel is like a funeral. No man can come to me unless he deny himself, take up his own cross and follow me. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. It's not a pretend funeral. It's a real funeral. We die to an old way of life. And by the Spirit of God, we're raised up again. And by the way, the new life is thousands of times better than the old life. And the real thing is a thousand times better than the play-acting game. So this generation is play-acting. And secondly, this generation is impossible to please. Here's the problem with sin. It creates and deepens an appetite it itself cannot satisfy, right? That's why he talks about it. It's like I was going in a, in a pit, the psalmist says. Have you really believed that there's a sin in your life that's ultimately going to satisfy you? Some relationship out there that's going to satisfy you? It just, it, just, uh, it just deepens the appetite, but doesn't... It's, it's sort of like if you kept eating food and it just made you hungrier and hungrier. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. And I've said this a thousand times, I know, but it's one of the main principles of my, of my life and prayerfully of my preaching. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. You remove the word righteousness from that text, you remove the word satisfied right along with it. So if you hunger and thirst after whatever it is, fortune, fame, recognition, you're not ever going to be satisfied. This generation's impossible to please. Look, they say, uh, hey, hey, we want to play, uh, play wedding. You don't want to play. We want to play funeral. We don't wanna, you don't want to play that either. What's Jesus getting at? Well, look what he says. He says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So John the Baptist comes, and in his preaching ministry, it's austere. He's, he's sort of removed. He's, he's not mingling in the crowds. John the Baptist does not travel to Jerusalem. He does not travel through Samaria. He goes out into the middle of nowhere, the wilderness, and all the people have to come to him. And he baptizes and preaches and so on and so forth. Then Jesus comes, and though they have the same message, they don't have the same method. And that's a pretty good principle for us, by the way. There are different methods, but there's one message, gospel proclamation. What was John's message? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's, what's Jesus' message? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they approached it a little bit differently. While John was out in the wilderness, Jesus comes and sits down with people. And, and who did they criticize? Which one of them did they criticize? Both, right? Both. They said, we didn't like the way John the Baptist did it, and we don't like the way Jesus did it. John the Baptist stood out in the wilderness. Jesus has come near. We don't like either one of them. Do you know what? It's impossible to please an unrighteous man. You say up, they say down. You say left, they say right. So here again, Calvary Baptist Church, a major theme from this section of Scripture, don't be people pleasers in the sense of trying to curry their favor and approval. Show me the righteous person, the righteous man or woman of God in the Scripture who the people approved of. You know what they did to the prophets? They killed him. You know what they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off. What do they do to Jesus Christ? They crucify him. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, we not expect much better. You don't want to play the wedding game, they said. You don't want to play the funeral game. You don't like John the Baptist. You don't like Jesus. No matter what was going on, they were critical, far or impossible to please. And so that does beg the question, is are you impossible to please? You know what this should be a group of? Satisfied people. Amen. I mean, Jesus said, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. So when we come in here, as we come together, it should be a unique group of people distinguished from every other group of people on the face of the planet because you're satisfied people. And it's not what can I get, what can I get, what can I get. It's what can I give and how can I serve and how can I exalt Christ Jesus do everything without complaining or grumbling. That's Philippians chapter 2. Romans 12, I'll also give you this. Romans 12 verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't you love that verse? There's a little something implied in that verse, right? Let me read it to you again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible. And what he's saying is there's some people that you're just never going to be able to please. It reminds me of the uh, uh, of the story I heard one time about the husband who was impossible to please and his wife had tried everything and finally she just she just gave up and she said well, well I'll tell you what I'll make him whatever he wants for breakfast I'll make it one time in his life he's going to say I'm satisfied so she the night before asked him what did he want to eat for breakfast and he said what I'd like is is one egg scrambled one egg fried and some toast she said well that's not too complicated she got up scrambled the egg fried the egg put it before him and he just said 
She said, sweetheart, I did exactly what you asked. What could possibly be wrong? He said, you scrambled the wrong egg. (laughs) If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Um, Bible principle. You just focus on pleasing the Lord Jesus. Focus on pleasing the Lord Jesus. Third, the childish generation is constantly complaining. So they're impossible to please, they're play-acting, and they're constantly complaining, right? We don't like John's ministry, we don't like Jesus' ministry. The translation now, concluding the first point, this generation is childish. They're play-actors. They the, they're not the real thing. They're impossible to please and constantly complaining. And they are the generation to which Jesus came. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You know, if Jesus had waited uh, for a generation to come along that weren't these things, he would have never come. Because every generation born in sin is play-acting, childish, complaining, and impossible to please. Second point, not to whom he came, but who came. Jesus, verse 34, I love the phrase, the Son of Man has come. Amen? Here's what John the Baptist had asked earlier in the chapter. Are you the one who's to come, or should we wait for another? Here's his answer. The Son of Man has come. You don't have to wait on somebody else. You don't have to, have to keep watching. The Son of Man has come, and here's what he's come doing. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, one of the interesting things is throughout, all, throughout, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' Jesus's critics, I'll get it out in a moment, Jesus' critics say things about him that are actually true, but they're not true in the way that the person speaking means it. For example, Jesus returns to Nazareth and preaches in the synagogue, and they say, isn't this Jesus, the son of a carpenter? Now, is that statement true? Well, yes, it's actually true, in the sense that Joseph had been his... Uh, been his earthly dad, so to speak, and had raised him. And, and what, what they were saying, they were criticizing him. Isn't he a nobody? The Son of God came making himself a man of no reputation. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came in the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So yes, he's, he's the son of a carpenter, but he's not just the son of a carpenter. And then others stood up and said, he's a great prophet. And he's a great prophet, but that's not all he is. Even when he's on the cross, They scream things at him that are actually true, but not in the way that they mean it. King of the Jews! He cannot save himself! Well, he could save himself, but if he saved himself, he couldn't save us. So he didn't save himself, so he could save us. Because he's a friend of sinners. They said two things of Jesus. One of them not true, and one of them true. Look what they say. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Now, Jesus is not those things. Jesus is not a glutton and a drunkard. But the second thing is he is. The second thing they say he is. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, paint the picture as plain as I know how to, how to put it. Go back up into verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so the audience in that day, and by the way, today, could be divided into two groups. The self-righteous 
and the others that the self-righteous called the no-good, nobodies, sinners, and tax collectors, right? So as Jesus is standing and he's teaching and he's preaching, the audience is divided in half. And over here, with their big, thick books and their phylacteries and their robes and their memorization of all the lines that they knew, like Curious George in the book, they knew what it said, but they didn't know what it said. You know what I'm saying? I just told you I wasn't going to say that, and I said it. Forgive me. And then the other people, the sinners and the tax collectors, and they said, Jesus is just like them. He's not just like them. He's come for them. And by the way, he's also come for the, <laughs> he's also come for the self-righteous. You know, the majority of the New Testament is written by a formerly self-righteous Pharisee named the Apostle Paul. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Luke 15, Jesus breaks it all down in the parable of the prodigal son. There's an older son and a younger son. And those two boys, as we'll see, one represents the self-righteous and one represents the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And I want you to think of how shocking that statement actually is. Jesus, righteous, holy, good, just, pure, perfect, son of God, a friend of sinners. Friend of sinners, yes, but no friend to sin. We live in an age where many in the church are prone to being friends to sin, but no friend to sinners. We're more prone to live in the world, or excuse me, of the world, but not in the world. Instead of being in the world, but not of the world, we're the opposite. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So, um, be imitators, therefore, of God as dearly loved children. Are you a friend of sinners? Can I give you a confession? We've just done the My Hope with Billy Graham, and it's been such a blessing to, um, to hear many of you share the stories with me this morning. My Hope with Billy Graham was a simple, uh, simple strategy. Billy Graham, 95th birthday this past week, he preached one more message. How many of you heard the message, by the way, either on the video or the television? It was such a great message. It says something about a 95-year-old man who says, I've got one message to preach, and here's the message, the cross, right? And that was his message. And so our strategy, right along with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, they asked churches like ours to partner with them, is to say, hey, would you open up your home, invite other people in, make some food for them, be like Matthew in the gospel. When Matthew came to faith in Christ, he opened up his home, invited everybody he knew in. And uh, so, so we participated in this last week. And, he, and you know what? This is a tragedy. I'm just confessing it to you. One of the hardest things that I had was to think of the lost people that I knew that I could invite that live in the town. Isn't that terrible? I'm just confessing it to you as your pastor. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Are you a friend of sinners? Or, have, or, or, or are we beginning to adopt this mentality? Well, we get, uh, we're not going to eat with them. We're not going to sit with them. They're out there. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He proves it a couple of ways. First of all, by being with sinners. By being with sinners. Jesus goes into their homes. He goes to their weddings. He goes to their villages. He's with them at their lowest moments. He takes time to speak to self-righteous Nicodemus and to the outcast woman at the well. There's nobody that comes along that Jesus says, I'm too good to speak to them and I don't have the time for them. He's a friend of sinners by being with sinners. He comes near the demon-possessed. He comes near the prostitutes. He comes near the tax collectors. All those that the religious elite shunned. A physician must be with patients, right? Can you imagine a doctor who would open up an office and say, well, I don't see anybody. I just practice medicine. Can you imagine being a church where those who don't know Christ aren't welcomed in? It would be no different than a doctor's office that doesn't have any patients. 
A teacher must be with students. Can you imagine a teacher making out lessons plans and then you ask them what they're doing and who your students are? Oh, I don't, I don't spend any time with students. I just prepare lessons. Jesus is not an absentee savior. He's a very present help in time of need. And I encourage you to be like him. To be like him in your relationships. Again, he's a friend of sinners, but not a friend to sin. You know it's possible to be both of those things. I think we're so worried about being one of those things that we don't do the the other. Say, I'm not going to be a friend of sin. Well, if you're not ever going to be trying to put it the, 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 you, you know, we are supposed to be distinct, right? A peculiar people, but friend of sinners, but not friend to sin. The interesting thing is that Jesus is the most inclusive and exclusive person that there's ever been, right? We talk about this inclusivity. Jesus was a very inclusive person. Let's do it this way. Let's break it down this way. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, John um, 8. The woman's called in adultery, right? The self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees. Can you imagine this scene? They bring the adulterous woman and kind of throw her down in front of Jesus and say, the law says that we should kill her. What do you say? Now, the whole purpose of the law was not to put a spotlight on the woman called in adultery. The whole purpose of the law was to put a spotlight on the Savior who could save her from adultery, could save us from lust and greed and anger and jealousy, to save us from sin. You know what? Jesus expects sinners to be sinful. These self-righteous Pharisees throw down, and Jesus says two things to her, and the order that he says them are extremely important, and it's what the Pharisees never understood. He says... First of all, he says to the crowd, right? Whoever is not guilty of sin, you go in and cast the first stone. Pretty good statement, isn't it? And they had come in this zealous, self-righteous anger, and they start looking around and say, well, okay, if that's the qualification, I can't cast the stone, right? So that eventually the, the, the crowd kind of unfizzles and they depart, and then it's just Jesus and the woman called in adultery. And can you imagine her shame and, and, and what they'd done to her? There is one, by the way, there who could have cast a stone, and that had been Jesus. He actually is without sin. Friend of sinners, but no friend of sin. He's no, he has no sin in him. But instead of casting the stone, Jesus shields her and says, is there no one to condemn you? And then he says, I do not condemn you either. And then he says, now go and what? Sin no more legalistic religion takes those two two statements and reverses them religious legalism says don't go sin anymore and then he won't condemn you and that's not what jesus says and that can't be what our message is we we sang it in the song if you tarry until you're better you'll never come at all you remember that it's like saying well when i get to feeling better i'll take my medicine (laughs) i got a bad cough when my cough's gone i'll take the cough syrup There's only one. There is only one solution for sin. It's not go and sin no more. It is, I don't condemn you either. Now, there is a just penalty for sin. That's why the law says you should stone somebody. But here's the reality. The Lamb of God has taken the stoning on himself. This is the gospel, all right? So buckle up. This is how you're saved. It's not just Jesus didn't just come to sit down with sinners and tax collectors at their tables and eat something and have a meal. He came to go to Jerusalem and for them to put him on a cross. And when he's on the cross, he takes the stoning for us. He takes the death for us so that we could be redeemed. 
You see, the, the just wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. It's not that God's nice and says, okay, do better. It's that God's holy and demands payment for the sin. You break his law, he doesn't say, okay, no problem. He says, there must be blood. <laughs> and Jesus gives the blood. But then when you believe and his spirit comes in you, then you can say, now, now, now. Not that I become sinless, but now because I love Jesus, I want to be obedient to him. And that's a whole different, right? It's a whole different religion to say, obey and you'll be loved, than it is to say you're loved, so now obey. It's the difference between being a slave to sin and an adopted child by the grace of God. Religion says behave, the gospel says believe. And then you can behave, <laughs> by the way, right? So Jesus is a friend of sinners by being with sinners. And then secondly, Jesus is a friend of sinners because he dies for their sins. I just want to close with one passage of Scripture. We studied it this past Wednesday night, and I loved it so much I wanted to share it Wednesday and Sunday. So go with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. This, is, of course, is after the crucifixion, and this is at the, at the early church. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. It says, but the high priest rose up. Now, who's the high priest? He's at the top of the religious pyramid, right? He's the, he's the head honcho in the whole legalistic scheme. And it is a pyramid scheme, by the way. <laughs> he's at the top of it. And Jesus has been crucified, and now Jerusalem is filled with this crazy story that the one they crucified is now alive. And this little band of brothers, the apostles, and some of the, some of the others are going around preaching that Jesus is alive. And the, and the high priest thought, I thought we dealt with all this. He rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. Now, we won't look at the verses, but every time the Sadducees are mentioned in the gospel, here's their description. And the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection... Says it in Matthew, it says it in Mark, says it in Luke. That's their official description. So you can imagine if you've staked your teaching that there is no resurrection, and now there's this group of people going around and saying he's risen, that that's a problem. They can't both be right, right? If, so, if they say there is no resurrection and they say he's risen, they can't both be right. Now let me just, again, encourage you, because we live in this age where people want to say if you have differing views, they can both be right. Where's north? It's that way. Now, you can say it's that way, but it's not that way. It's actually that way. If he's risen, he's risen. You can't say that he's not risen. Uh, God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. So, 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 yes, you can be courteous and kind, and this is no license to, be, um, to, to, to act you know, hateful if someone says that they have a different belief than you. But this notion that we're just all, all these beliefs are kind of the same, that can't possibly be true. Either he's alive and he's the Lord, or he's not. Our confession, my confession is, I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. He is the way and the truth and the life. So, they're saying he's risen. The Sadducees and the high priests are saying they're not, and they're filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So, uh, the Sadducees, by the way, didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. No resurrection, no angels, no miracles. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and 
brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people. What happens is they had arrested them, the Sadducees had, and they're going to put them on trial the next day and deal with this. They go to the prison the next day and the apostles aren't there. They're gone. They've been freed by an angel. So Sadducees say there's no resurrection. Apostles say he's risen. Sadducees say there's no angels. The apostles say, well, how do we get out of prison? Sadducees say no more message. Apostles say we must obey God rather than men. You see, there it is. I'm not a people pleaser. I've got to obey God rather than men. And here's Peter's message about the friend of sinners. Peter, verse 29, said, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There you have the mission and the method of the church outlined in a beautifully brief synopsis what's the mission of the church we're witnesses of these things what things jesus is raised jesus has been crucified jesus has been exalted and jesus is at work that's what our message is christ crucified christ resurrected christ exalted christ at work to give forgiveness of sin and repentance. That's it. You, 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 the church, we don't have a long list, a long to-do list. We've got that to-do list. We're witnesses of these things. Who's the we? You saw who was speaking, right? Peter. You remember Peter, don't you? The night he was crucified. I don't even know him. Weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? I don't know who you're talking about. Aren't you from Galilee? I can tell it by your accent. I don't know the man. Did we just do this last week? Some, Peter's been on my heart and mind, I guess. Question. What's the difference between Peter before a nobody crowd by a charcoal fire saying he doesn't even know Jesus and Peter in front of the high priest and the Sadducees saying he's risen, you killed him, God exalted him, and he's giving repentance and faith? What's the difference? We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who, what? Obey. Not to those who know about him. Not to those who can play act. Not to those who pretend, those who obey. Winding down, coming to a close. You remember what Jesus said in the early verses, chapters of Acts? Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> remember this? You just go stay in that room. And, but when the Holy Spirit comes, here's the verse. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my, who knows it? Witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes, you can't stop him. He's going everywhere. And what's the Holy Spirit's message? What does Peter say? Crucified Christ, resurrected Christ, exalted Christ, at work Christ. So every, every week that you come in here, we're going to study a different passage of Scripture. But you know what the message is every week? <laughs> Crucified Christ. Resurrected Christ. Exalted Christ. At work Christ. Last concluding question. Is he your friend? Do you know him? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Jesus did not come just to eat and drink with sinners. He came to offer his life a ransom for many. And Jesus concludes, we'll conclude with Jesus. 
what Jesus concludes with. I've told you 10 times we're concluding. I really mean it this time, right? Let's finish where we started. Verse 35. Verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus begins by saying this generation is childish. But wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? In, it means a child acts like his father. Most everywhere I go, my dad's been passed away since 1994, but especially when I'm with people who knew him, you know what they always say about me? You look just like your dad, except my dad was bald. He said, you look like your dad with hair. That's a statement I get all the time. And I've got a son of my own. And when we're together, it happened just the other day, we were checking out at K&W. We had gone to eat lunch together. And the lady says, that's your son, isn't he? I said, it sure is. He said, he just looks just like daddy. Wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus is saying, if you want to know if you're the real thing, who do you act like? Right? Who do you look like? Childish generation. We're just giving the description. We're just repeating Jesus. Childish generation play acts, but they're not the real thing. Sing the songs, but there's no joy in their heart. Know the verses, but don't really believe. They complain all the time. You just take inventory of your life. How often did you frequently did you complain this week? Complain about the politics, complain about the world, complain about the gas prices, complain, 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 complain. You have been bought with a price. Christ has redeemed you. If you're a child of God, what do we really have to complain about? This world's passing away anyway. So don't get so worked up about it. Now be prayerful and be involved, but don't be a complainer. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. They play acted, they complain, and they could not be satisfied. You look at God and say, you scrambled the wrong egg. That's the children of unbelief. Wisdom's children are like Jesus. They're with sinners. And not just spending time with them without a purpose, but spending time with them to teach them about himself. So our responsibility is to spend time with them to teach them and show them and model them and act like, look like, speak like, respond like Jesus. Now, that's impossible to do apart from the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's not there, the play acting will in time be exposed. So let's stand together. We're going to pray together. The time of invitation is always just simply a time that we respond. And prayerfully, as we've looked at the Scripture, the Bible always does two things. It convicts where we need it, and it encourages where we need it. So have you been convicted in an area, perhaps like me, as I've studied and I've thought? I'm not a friend of sinners the way that, I, that a way that I should be. Jesus was intentional. And so often in my life, I'm not that. And perhaps that's what the Lord would speak over your life today. Or perhaps all your life, all your life, you've been thinking, if I go sin and no, if I go sin no more, I won't be condemned. And I just want to share with you, in accordance with the Word of God, you've got it backwards. I do not condemn you. I love you. I accept you. I protect you. I guard you from shame. See, with the adulterous woman, Jesus did not justify her sin. He did not approve of her sin. He died for her sin. 
And now, now we're not perfect, but we're seeking to go sin no more, to be liberated, to be redeemed. Father, these are the things that you do. You're rich in mercy. You're full of grace. They criticized Jesus that he's a friend of sinners, but to him their criticism was the greatest of compliments. You are a friend of sinners. You're patient and kind, persevering, full of grace and truth. That's our Lord Jesus. So, Father, if there's anyone here who uh, has got it backwards, that once they clean up their act, you'll sit down and eat with them. No, it's by your coming, by you drawing near. This is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us first. If there's anybody here that's saying, well, no, 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 you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I can't sit at the table with Jesus. Please hear that he's gone to the cross to take your place. And he does love you with an everlasting love. If you'll submit to him, believe in him, trust him, that he is a friend of sinners and a savior from sin. Lift high the name of Jesus. Lead our prayer time, our invitation, our response time. Help it to be pleasing to the friend of sinners, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.